Samuel said when he went to anoint David, because he was he was looking at who who could take over. It hurt last week over when the disaster Saul was turning out of the king. Oh, I've got to uh, get. Now it's working. Okay. Let me start over again. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, everyone. How's that? Okay. All right. So, for the third time, thank you, Michelle. For the third time, thank you, everyone. Um, and for the second time, um, if you forget everything else that we, that we talk about today, remember this one. This is what Samuel did when he was kind of mopey after it was clear to him that Saul was not working out well. Right? We talked about that last week. What a disaster Saul was turning out as king. And Samuel was kind of mopey, and God said, All right, Samuel, quit moping. Let's go find somebody else, because God always has a plan. And, 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 and uh, so Samuel was looking at somebody, a potential candidate said, This must be the guy. I mean, this guy's like, what's, wrong, what's, what's not to like about this dude? And what did God say? He said, People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. This is not the guy. I'll lead you to the guy. So remember that, if you forget everything else. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Amen? Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And that is from Psalm 1914, which is actually a psalm of David, who is one of the, the persons we're mainly talking about today. So I'll, I'm going to apologize just slightly. I've, I'm a bit congested, and I may... I may be coughing a bit, but uh, Lori's got her finger on the mute button if I start to cough. And, uh, and if you're worried, I, it's actually, I sound a lot worse than I feel. And after this, I'm going to be going on vacation to Camp Wanahakalugi. Um, talking? Got it there? Got it. Okay. So what are, what are the characteristics of a heart of worship? That's what we want to look at today. There's four things that we want to talk about in looking at the characteristics of a heart of worship. The first one is a heart that expresses itself to the Lord. And uh, so in, in talking about David's life and reviewing what David's all about, um, a few things to, to kind of note. First of all, that heart of David's 
was transparent with God. It expressed to him, in front of others, unashamedly, what he was feeling like. And I feel like that's an important characteristic of a heart that expresses itself to God. It doesn't just express, it's transparent. And it also says, Lord, here's where I'm at, and I can say it in front of anybody, because I can be transparent in front of anybody. So I'd say that's one characteristic we can look for in David. A second one um, is a heart to seek the Lord's will. Um, it says, um, in, if you look through the, the, the verses or the, the chapters in the Bible that pertain to chapter 11 in the story, um, you see many times, 1 Samuel 23, 2 and 4, 23, 9, 38, 2 Samuel 2, 1, 5, 19, and 23, 1 Chronicles 14, 14. You see these words, David inquired of the Lord. David didn't really want to make a move without asking God, God, what should I do? So that to me is, another, again, a characteristic of, characteristic of a heart of worship is you go inquire of the Lord. It doesn't mean you don't pay attention to other people. It doesn't mean you can't, you can't get advice or, or fellowship with other people, but you don't need to inquire from other people. One of the things that we'll see as we go through later today is Saul needed to hear from Samuel, and he didn't hear from God. He stopped wanting to hear from God, and he only felt like he could hear from Samuel, and that kind of drove him nutsy cuckoo. A third thing, a third characteristic, is a harder respect for others. A lot of times in David's life, you'll see that David says, I'm not going to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. He says that about Saul. Saul's chasing him all over a large swath of central Palestine, trying to kill him in the midst of a big battle with the Philistines. Um, and David has a couple of opportunities and decides, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. That's not my place. Even though he had friends that said, David, we could do this. I could kill him with one blow. And David said, no, not going to happen. But it wasn't just Saul. He showed respect to other people. Um, even people that didn't seem to deserve much, like Nabob, if that name means anything to you, um, was somebody who was kind of a, kind of a, kind of a, a weak, useless guy. But David showed respect to his shepherds and respect for his property. David showed respect for the priests that he ran across, even when he was asked to do something that was kind of, it was a big thing. It was a big ask he made of the priests, but he did it respectfully. He showed respect to Saul's household, which included not just Saul's daughter, Michael, but Saul's son, Jonathan, Saul's other son, Ishbosheth, and Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. And so David showed a great deal of respect to them. He showed respect to the Philistines, who were the enemies of Israel, but he showed respect to the king of the Philistines. So that was another characteristic of, of that heart of, of worship, is respect for others at all times. And then the final thing is a heart with a clear conscience. The one haunting question that David asks over and over again to Saul and to Achish, the king of the Philistines, is, what have I done to you to, to cause you to not like me or to, to oppose me? And the reason he could say that is because he knew he had a clear conscience before me. It doesn't mean he never did anything wrong, because that happens. We all do things wrong. But you go and you clear it up right away. One of the worst incidents, which we'll talk about later with the Ark of the Covenant, shows that David doesn't always get it right. But when he realizes he doesn't get it right, he turns it around, figures out what to do, and gets it right. So I believe a heart with a clear conscience. So these are the, the four characteristics as we review the life of David that I think we'll see. And I would say these are the things that call to mind a heart of worship. These are the things that cause David to be called a man after God's own heart. 
These are the things that caused David to write about half of the Psalms that we have in the Bible, including some other things that are pretty cool that are just in the text of the books that aren't a psalm necessarily, but are also very poetic, very artistic, and very expressive of his heart of worship. So these are the things I think we'll look to it. I'd like to say, just plant this thought now. We have an election season coming up, right? We've heard that over. 2024 is going to be an election year, right? A big election year. And so one of the things we'll be doing is we'll be choosing leaders. And one of the things that I think is good for us to think about is what, what are the characteristics of a heart of a leader? And what do you want to see in a leader? Or, I'll even be more bold, what if you could be that leader? What are the characteristics that you want to have in your own life to become a leader? It doesn't have to be the leader of the country. It could be just a leader in your little neck of the woods where you're at, at work or at church or in your family or in your circle of friends. But these are these characteristics, I think, are very transferable. Okay, um, so we're going to go ahead and note a couple of things. Um, interestingly, um, in... Uh, in last week, when in, in the chapter 10 of the story, in the story of Samuel um, installing Saul as king, uh, Samuel had this interest, interesting testimony, uh, prophecy really, about, about Saul. And uh, it, it, it's, he sort of said that um, if, if you pay attention to what God is saying, things are going to go well. And if you don't, things are going to go poorly. And Saul didn't stick in his head very long. But the prophecy came true about David instead. So I think that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of good to know. It's also interesting that if you remember at the end of Judges, there was a, a little bit of violence in the land. Do you remember that incident with the tribe of Benjamin and some of the men coming to, to molest somebody at night? And then there was retribution because of what the tri- people of Benjamin did. That happened in the town of Gibeah, which happens to be where... Saul came from. That's kind of interesting. I don't know. And then later, the Benjamites were massacred, right? They were almost wiped out. And then to, to kind of restock, they took wives from, other, from, from neighboring areas uh, who were non-Israelite, non-Jewish. So it's interesting. I don't know that for sure that Saul came from that, but it's interesting that Saul um, kind of came out of that. The other thing that I think is worth noting um, is that in this talking about Samuel and Saul, we sort of moved from a tribal governance to a national governance. So when it talks about the elders or the princes, you know, there's a reference to the princes of the Philistines. There's references to the elders of Israel. Those are still kind of tribal chieftains, heads of clans, heads of of families. It was kind of a confederation of people that agreed, okay, we'll meet, we'll agree that we'll support this person or this person as a leader. And off we go. But there was no constitution. There were no halls of power. There was none of that. In the life of David, we're going to see a transition from that type of governance into a national governance, where David is the king, and there is a capital city, and there's kind of a a place where the the room where it happens is established. So that's another transition we'll see. This is a map that has a bit of where things are happening in this time. just to give you a little perspective, um, the Salt Sea right there at the bottom is what we call the Dead Sea today. And uh, I, got, I can get my laser pointer here. I'm going to point at this side, but I'm assuming you guys can see from either end. This city is called Gaza. It's the same city that's kind of in the news today. 
Gaza. And this is the area of the Philistines here on the coast. And Jerusalem is right about here. This is the Dead Sea right here. This is Hebron where uh, David had his headquarters for a while. This is En Gedi right next to the Dead Sea where David uh, had one of his strongholds. This is Ramah where Samuel's hometown was. And this is the area of Benjamin right in here. Like if you remember the word Nob from the priest of Nob, that's Nob right there. Um, and so Saul came from this area of the tribe of Benjamin and um, David came from this area just below from the tribe of Judah. And the Philistines, even though this is their land, when they had the big battle with Saul, that was way up here in the Valley of Jezreel, which is also called the Valley of Megiddo. So it was a, little, a lot further north. So you can see the Philistines had kind of gotten out of their area and were threatening. This is like the breadbasket of Israel. This would be like somebody coming after um, Missouri and Iowa and Illinois and, and Indiana, you know, where all the crops are grown. This would be like somebody threatening that area right there. So it was important that the Philistines be stopped there. Um, so, and then these are some of the other peoples you've heard about, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites were down here, and the Syrians are up here. And those are some of the people that David dealt with. So just to give you a little perspective, um, okay, let's go, let's kind of trace the timeline now and see how the story unfolds. So as I mentioned, Samuel was kind of moping, and uh, God says, all right, Samuel, snap out of it. Let's go, let's go find a king. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like God always has a plan. Even if one funks out, there's always somebody else in the wings, which always makes me wonder, you know, in, in God's plan, am I the choice? Am I the next choice? Am I the flunk out? You know, wh- where am I at in God's plan? Something I always want to kind of keep uppermost in my head. I always want to be the choice or maybe the backup choice. I never really want to be the flunk out. But Saul was the flunk out. God had a plan. Um, and we were talking earlier with the worship team. And uh, it's easy when you've got a, a large family to kind of overlook the younger ones. You know, the older ones are the ones, even though they're slightly neurotic, because they're the oldest. That happens. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, Daniel's back there. Sorry about that, Daniel. Um, but sometimes the younger ones, you know, they're the ones that, yeah, you know, well, we're doing something important. They're off picking their nose, playing and doing stuff and getting muddy and dirty, right? That's often how you see the younger ones. The older ones are the ones that are kind of carrying the ball. And so when Samuel goes to look for a king and, and God leads him to Jesse's family and, uh, and Samuel sees the oldest, he's like, oh, this is the guy right here. And he's good looking. He's strong. You know, he's smart. And God's like, nope. That's when he makes that statement, right? Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Okay, what about son number two? He's pretty good looking too. He's pretty buff. No. Three? Four? He goes down the line. Nope, 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 nope. And Samuel's like, um, he was holding his anointing. Well, uh, you got any more sons? Yeah, there's that kid out there, you know. He's out there tending the sheep, you know, doing the lowliest thing possible. And Samuel goes and looks at him. He said, God says, this is the guy. Really? This little kid is the guy. I mean, I say little kid. He probably was a teenager. But this is the guy, not those other ones? (sighs) Okay. So Samuel anoints David. And it says at that point that God was with David mightily from that point on. Okay. So even though David had, I feel like, an awareness of God. In the Western church, we call it prevenient grace. God working in you before he really gets a hold of you. From the time that God got a hold of David at that point. He was with him mightily from that point on. 
It says, um, this is all, by the way, in 1 Samuel 16. So there's the choice of David as king. So now David is anointed to do what? Right? He's still the youngest. And his dad says, hey, all the older kids have been mustered for battle with with Saul and the Philistines in the Valley of Jezreel, an important battle where the Philistines are threatening the breadbasket of the country. Um, Go over and take this food to your brothers because they didn't have like a quartermaster in those days, right? Yeah, they were fed when they brought the food or when their families brought the food to them. That's how the soldiers got fed. So David's like, yeah, I got to go hang out with the big kids, you know. So he runs, has his stuff, takes over there. And, you know, his brother see him, hey, what are you doing here? You're just here, just you're a looky-loo. You just want to see some blood and see some battle, you know, get out of here. Um, that's how he's greeted. And then he, when David's there, you know, instead of being paying attention to chiding his brother, he sees what's going on. The lines of the of the, the Israeli army are on one side, and the lines of the Philistine army on their side, and there's a wadi, a dry brook between the two. And then there's this dude. There's this really big dude. How big a dude was he? Well, I'd say where the word David is, that's about how big he was. Okay? A big dude. According to the Bible, about nine and a half feet tall. I think that the tallest recorded man we know of is like eight foot eleven, and he lived to be maybe around forty years old. So that dude. And he's wearing armor that weighs 150 pounds, it says. In the Bible, it says shekels, which sounds like a unit of money. But often, money and weight were sort of uh, the same. You measured the value of something by how much it weighed. So it says, you know, how many thousand shekels? About 150 pounds of armor. Now, I remember way long time ago when Greg stood up here and put on the armor of God as a demonstration of Ephesians 6. If you had had 150 pounds of armor, he would have been here for about 30 seconds probably. And then he would have fallen in a heap to the floor. 150, I mean, how many of you don't even weigh 150 pounds, right? That's a lot. That's pretty serious armor. It said that the spear, right, the spear that he used weighed 15 pounds, okay? How many of you have gone to bowling and you go, I'll try, try a 12-pounder. Can't even pick it up, right? He was chucking a 15-pound spear, okay? This is one pretty bad dude. David recognized that when he was mocking the armies, he was mocking God. And so David, even though he was, you know, maybe a teenager, maybe even around 20, he wasn't having this. And he said, well, we got to do something. We can't let this bozo just talk this smack to us. So he's looking, is somebody going to do something? And all the people in Israel are all like, yeah, somebody should do something. Now it says earlier that Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else in, in, the, in, in, in the area. So, I mean, you know, if, if somebody, some big dude were to come in, right, we would be looking at, you know, well, Eric's not here today, but, you know, <laughs> right? We're looking at the tall guys. Okay, <laughs> we got some tall guys here. We, we, we can fight back. Saul would have been the obvious choice as the tallest guy, right, to, to fight back against Goliath. But he wasn't doing it. Well, I'm the king. I'm too important to uh, fight a mere battle. So David's like, I'll do it. I know I'm just a kid or a young adult, but I'm not afraid of this bozo because I believe in God. I believe God is going to deliver me. And I'm not going to worry about that he's up that tall or he's wearing 150 (coughs) pounds of armor 
or his spear weighs 15 pounds. I'm going to fight him because I'm going to trust that God will give me the victory. And, and he even mentioned, God gave me the victory when I fought the lion and the bear. And I thought, okay, fought a lion and a bear. That, that's, that's impressive for a shepherd boy, right? That's impressive. So David's like, uh, Saul's like, well, I'll put, put, put my armor on. You know, maybe they'll think it's me out there instead. Put my armor on and you can go out there and fight. And David's like, man, this is too much. You ever put on your dad's suit? It's like, oh, this is too big. I can't do this. So David says he gets a sling. Now, I, I think in the past, I used to think he had one of these kinds of slings, right? That kind of sling. Um, he actually had a sling that was, if you took a, like a braided cord about 30 centimeters long, cut it in half, and then put a little pouch and sewed a little pouch on the end of it, and then put a loop so you could hold it around your finger and left the other end free. You could sling it like this, and then you'd throw it like a baseball, either overhand, sidearm, or underarm. And the rock was probably about that big. I've seen YouTube videos. You can see it's called a Balearic sling. Um, and it was a very popular uh, um, skirmishing tool for armies back in those days. And if you look at some of the videos, there's a, there's a guy, there's one where this guy smashes a, a watermelon with it. And he's, per, he's further away than a baseball pitcher is. And he slings it and just disintegrates this watermelon. Another one where somebody hits a target, and because he's, he's more accurate than a baseball pitcher with these slings. So it wasn't an extraordinary thing like, oh my gosh, you got this little tiny slingshot. And, no, David knew what he was doing. But he still was a good aim. He was good at what he could do. He took Goliath down, right, in the one way that Goliath could be taken down. Don't get near him. Take him down from afar. And David did that. And then he cut off his head and showed that, uh, you know, this is, this is God's victory. And he repeatedly said this was God's victory. And at first Saul was like, yeah, it's my buddy David, right? This, my boy David, man. We're awesome. I'll give you one of my daughters as a wife. You know, we're, 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 we're tight. And then he started to hear this stuff, right? They started the, the, the songs, right? So you heard the songs... On, uh, on TikTok or on YouTube or on TV. You know, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul's like, wait a minute. I'm the king. I'm the, I'm, I'm the dude here. What do you mean he's slain tens of thousands? And Saul started to get jealous and envious of David. Now, he, it's funny. At that time, right about that time, I feel like the Lord started to depart from Saul. It said that an evil spirit came and started to torment Saul. And the suggestion was, why don't you get somebody who's a good, good psalmist and they can play and soothe you while, while stuff's happening. And Saul's like, all right. David turned out to be a really good psalmist. So he's not just a good sling thrower. He's not just good with the sheep. He's not just willing to do what his dad says and take a little abuse from his brothers from time to time. He's also an artist and a poet. So he's sitting there playing the lyre, which is kind of like a, an old-time guitar. And... Saul settles down. And then the evil spirit takes hold of him and Saul tries to pin David to the wall a couple of times with throwing his javelin. So Saul is starting to get a little nutty. And he starts to pursue David. Now, as Pastor Tremar talked about last week, they're in this big battle with the Philistines. I mean, this is like a mortal enemy. This is like, um, it's, 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 going to, it's going to become an existential moment. If they don't get rid of these Philistines, they're going to be in huge trouble. The Philistines 
had taken out all of the surrounding peoples. They almost took out the Egyptians, and they had taken out some of the other area, peoples in the area. They were riding high. And now they were after the, the, the people of Israel. So in the midst of this existential crisis, Saul starts to chase David around, wanting to kill him. He gets fixated, right? I, the Philistines aren't my real enemy. David's my real enemy. And he's chasing David around. And David has a couple of opportunities where he could kill Saul, right? One time Saul's going to the bathroom in a cave. David's there. He could take him, but he doesn't. He cuts off a corner of his cloak, feels guilty about it, and later returns it and says, Saul, here's, the, here's your cloak, but look how close I was to you. And, and Saul's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm, I've, I'm dishonoring you. And then he forgets about that, starts chasing David around again. Another time David sees Saul asleep, and, and one of David's mighty men is like, we can take him, we can take him. Give me, give me just a second, I can, t- one thrust right through his head, he's dead. And David's like, no, we're not going to touch him. But he took his helmet, and he took his sword. And again, after Saul got up, David's like, Saul, look what I've got. Look what I could have done. And I didn't. So David had a chance to do things. Interestingly, while Saul hated his guts, Saul's kids, right, Michael, his daughter, and his son Jonathan, really loved David. In fact, it says that uh, Jonathan and David had a really close bond And I'll just briefly mention, some people have looked at the wording about the the care and the friendship that David and Jonathan had and said, ah, they must have been homosexual lovers. Well, I'm going to say I don't believe that because, first of all, everything doesn't have to lead to sex. And if you have a close relationship with another man or a woman, a close relationship with another woman, you can have that close relationship without it leading to sex. And I believe this is the kind of relationship that that David and Jonathan had. Plus, for, for, for better or worse, um, romance and marriage were not quite the way they're looked at today. So the, your woman, your, your, your uh, wife or your husband may not have been your best friend in your life at that time. Your best friend could easily have been somebody who was of the same sex that you enjoy doing things with. So it's, it's, I just wanted to make that side, because you see that argument. If you Google... David and Jonathan, and you're not careful, you'll see a bunch of stuff, a bunch of weird stuff. Um, so I just want to say, that's out there. I don't believe it. Um, in fact, even today, um, there are a couple of guys that I will, we will end conversations with, love you. And it doesn't mean that there's this romantic attraction. It just means there's a great deal of care. So Saul and Jonathan had that. Jonathan turned out to be a double agent. He would tell Saul... Uh, or tell David, hey, my dad's going here, you need to go there. Or my dad's on the move, okay, and you need to be aware of what's going on. So Jonathan was keeping track of Saul's movements and helping David out. So it's just very interesting that that, that happens. So um, David also, uh, because he was running from Saul, ended up living among the Philistines for a little while, which is kind of funny. You're taking refuge from Saul by hiding within the camp of Saul's enemies. So um, he was in the Philistine area. The king of the Philistines kind of gave him grace. But what David did was very interesting. What he did is he said, I'm going to operate and attack the, the, the land of Israel. But what he did is he attacked not Israelites, but other peoples that were living in Israel, like Edomites and Moabites. And he was attacking them 
um, kind of in the name of Philistia. Uh, so he wasn't attacking the uh, Israelites themselves. So the king of the Philistines is thinking, well, this guy's becoming a traitor to his people. But the people on you, he was kind of sticking up for them, getting rid of some of these troublesome people that had been around for a long time. So it was a brilliant tactical move by David to do that. And David also developed this band of people that in Chronicles are referred to as David's mighty men. I love that word. Um, these, are, these are guys that were sold out to helping David. I mean, there were 600 dudes, and they were running around from, from Saul. Now, I don't know how, how easy it is to get 600 guys to follow you. I don't think that's that hard. I mean, that easy. But then get 600 guys to follow you as you continue to run away from somebody instead of turn around and fight. Like, if I'm a mighty man, I want to be mighty and fight. And David instead has convinced them our best thing to do is to respect Saul, respect the kingship, and stay on the run until the moment, until the right time comes. And so they stuck with him. Um, so I think that's, that shows to me his leadership ability. People who are close to him, instead of saying, oh, this guy's a jerk or a hypocrite, he is actually pretty cool that I'm willing to do something that's kind of crazy to do that. Well, eventually Saul completely loses it. Um, and what happens is he, um, he, he's, Samuel has died. God is not speaking to him. Saul has alienated himself from David. He's the king, but he's kind of a king often in name only. He needs guidance, so he consults a, a, a medium, a witch, and says, I need you to conjure up the ghost of Samuel. So it's a very interesting story there in 1 Samuel 28, where um, this... The spiritists who are there, they are absolutely not allowed to operate, right? Deuteronomy forbids consulting a medium, necromancy, any of that, out the window. Cannot, don't do it. It's, it's a, it's vile in God's sight. And so here is Saul, even though there was a, a law in the books that they shouldn't be doing something, he's visiting somebody late at night. In fact, he had to go about 17 miles from the encampment to visit this, this, uh, this medium in Endor. And he goes to visit her. And uh, he says, I want you to bring, bring up the spirit of Samuel. And it's funny because when she starts to do her little necromancy thing, she sees an old man in a cloak and she's, ah, you're Saul, you've deceived me. It's like, I kind of think, well, if you were really a spiritist, wouldn't you have kind of known that already? But, oh, well, whatever. I, I think there is room for thinking this was a demon in the form of Samuel. I think there's room for thinking this was God allowing Samuel to come back even in this kind of crazy way. I mean, God did allow Moses and Elijah to come back for the transfiguration in the Gospels. But anyway, however it happened, the, the ghost of Samuel comes back, says, you know, first of all, why have you disturbed me? And secondly, Saul, you're going to die, your son's going to die, and the army's going to go like that. And it's going to happen tomorrow. And Saul just, he, 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 he kind of, he just loses it. I think at that point, he becomes completely ineffective as king. It turns out it happens just as he said. The next day there's a battle and the Philistines overcome and Saul sees it's going badly. He decides to kill himself. So he, he didn't fight to the end, right? It wasn't the captain that went down with the ship. He decided to take his own life. Um, David laments that. Oh, and Jonathan died in that battle as well. But David is very much lamenting this. And in 2 Samuel 1, you see this thing called the battle of the bow where he, he, he writes about the loss, the tragedy of Saul, what he could have been, and Jonathan, his friend, who he was. 
and how they both fell in battle. And it's, it's lovely. If you, if you haven't had a chance to read 2 Samuel 1, please do it. It talks about that. And uh, at that point, David is now kind of the obvious person to become leader. It doesn't happen right away. There's no constitutional convention. At first, the tribal elders of Judah kind of have a little meeting, and they decide to make David their leader. So David is basically the leader of the tribe of Judah. And then he starts to fight against the Philistines, and he starts to have some success. And believe it or not, his biggest ally in making him king over all of Israel is Saul's general, Abner. Saul's general, Abner, is kind of seeing the writing on the wall and seeing, I think David is really the guy after all. And Saul, or Abner is the one that says, I'm going I'm to get, because Abner still has the loyalty of a lot of people, says, I'm going to turn everybody over to David. It, this is the one little weird part about this, is David's, one of David's mighty men, Joab, uh, didn't like this. And Joab ends up killing Abner, uh, because Abner did kill his brother. You killed my brother, I'll kill you. Um, and that's unfortunate. David said, ah, that's you, Abner, that's on you. I, I mean, Joab, that's on you. I had nothing to do with I didn't order this, I didn't want this. Abner was helping me out. But Abner sort of helped David become the king over all of Israel. One of the things that David decides to do right away is to establish a capital city. And so he's like, okay, we need a capital city, and I'm going to go take Jerusalem. It belonged to this people called the Jebusites. But Jerusalem is kind of a nice place. It's up strategically located. It's on a high point. Um, from an from a, from a economic standpoint, it's got this thing called the Gihon Spring. Tons of water there and in the midst of an otherwise fairly unfriendly area. There's a lot of water there, very readily available. It's also, there's also kind of a sanctity to it. Um, there, the, uh, he knows about the, uh, the threshing floor of Achish, um, which is an, a different story, that was purchased because it was the place where Abraham took um, Isaac to sacrifice, Mount Moriah. And so David knew that this was tied in with Jerusalem as well. So, um, so he had all these, these really good reasons. And then there was the unity idea. Jerusalem didn't really belong to any particular tribe. It was kind of independent of everybody. So if you were to make that the capital, nobody would say, well, this was the tribe of Benjamin, this was the tribe of Judah, this was the tribe of Ephraim, whatever. You wouldn't have any of that sort of thing happening. So it was kind of a good political move for David to do that. So now that he's got the loyalty of all the tribes, he then turns his full force on the Philistines and defeats them, finally gets rid of this pestersome enemy that's been around for a long time and puts him down, and the Philistines never really emerge as a threat to Israel again. Then he turns around and starts going after some of the other peoples, and I mentioned them before, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Syrians, that had also been kind of a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites ever since they came into the area. And he wins military battles against all of them. So he establishes peace for the first time in a very long time. It doesn't mean absolute peace, but for, the, for all intents and purposes, um, they're not fighting a defensive battle anymore. And so there's a chance for the, this confederation of tribes to start to become a nation. Um, and God understood that. And God saw, because God directed. David inquired of the Lord, should I do this, should I do that? God kept directing him, yes. And so God established an, 
I think the most amazing covenant with David. He said it will be an everlasting covenant. The kingdom will always be in your legacy. But he wasn't just talking about an earthly kingdom. Because if you look in the New Testament, you see the term son of David that kind of emerges. You never really see that term in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, right from the get-go in Matthew, right from the get-go in, in Mark, right from the get-go in Luke, you see the term son of David associated with the Messiah. It became understood in the period between the Old and New Testament that the Messiah was coming from the line of David. And this was the everlasting covenant that God gave to David. He said, I'm going to, the king of all kings is going to be your descendant because of the fact that you honor me. It doesn't mean everything that David did was perfect. When we get into chapter 12 next week, there's some very imperfect things that David's going to do there. But for this, up to this point, David has done so well that God has honored him with this covenant. And, and David has accepted that. It's a covenant and it's a lineage that's beyond political and beyond human. So let's go back to those characteristics. Okay? Um, I talked about expressing yourself. And I want to read a couple of psalms. And Dick said, David wrote about half the psalms. Here's one. This is Psalm 63. This is when David was on the run from Saul in the stronghold of En Gedi. And you may say, oh, I've heard this before. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being belongs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, right next to the Dead Sea. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him. All the mouths of liars will be silenced. So that's the poetry, that's the expressiveness of the heart of, of David. Here's another one I'm going to read. This is Psalm 139. And this is a psalm that David wrote when he was made king over all Israel. And watch the transparency of this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. 
If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The expressiveness of the heart of the king. The heart of the king seeks. The heart of the king inquires of the Lord in the way in which he asks. Does not depend on others. Respect. The, the, the king respects others for who God has made them to be, even if they're opposing them. And he may express emotion about it like he just did in the psalm I read. Say, I hate those people, but I'm still going to respect who God made them to be and not do anything that God doesn't tell me to do. And then finally, a clear conscience. So there was this time when David became king and he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant that had been away from the people. They'd been out in somebody's house, basically, for a couple of decades. So I'm going to bring this. Now that I've got a capital city of Jerusalem, I'm going to bring the Ark of the Covenant home. And so the Ark of the Covenant got delivered on an ox cart by the Philistines when the Israeli army took it to war during the time of Samuel, foolishly thinking, if we take the Ark of the Covenant into battle, the Philistines will run away. Well, the Philistines actually captured it. But then the Ark of the Covenant kept throwing their god face down in their temple. So they said, ah, this is not working out too well. They put on an ox cart, sent it back into the outskirts of the land of Israel. David's going to go get it. But it's always kind of been on an ox cart. So he thought, well, I guess that's how you do it. You do it on an ox cart. So you have a big processional, a huge celebration with singers and dancers and all the army and all the people. And they start to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And as it's going down the road, it, it wobbles. And, and the son of the guy whose house was at puts his arm out to steady it. And God strikes him dead on the spot. And everyone's like, whoa, talk about a buzzkill? <laughs> what happened? God had prescribed how the Ark of the Covenant was to be driven, was to be taken. It was to be taken by the Levites on these long poles and carried by people, not on an ox cart. David hadn't done his homework, and as a result, that person died. Now, dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you in God's sight, right? 
Disobedience is the worst thing that you can do in God's sight. So even though the man died, I, I tend to think he made it where he needed to be. But David had to learn a lesson. David clearly went back and figured out, how am I supposed to move this thing? So they made a second attempt, and this time he did it the right way. And he took it all the way into Jerusalem and made a tabernacle, a big fancy tent for it, and put it in the tabernacle. And that was going to be its home until Solomon, his son, built the temple. David wanted to build a temple, and God said, no, not going to be you. You're, I'm good. I'm good for you. So David learned. So he could still say, I have a clear conscience. Even when I screw up, I'm going to figure out the right way to do it. I'm going to do it well. So again, the challenge, right? These are the characteristics of somebody who's the heart of the king, who has a heart of worship, expresses, seeks, respects, has a clear conscience. Who do we want as a leader in our country, as leaders in our country? Who do we want to be as leaders? This is a role model I think we should all look for. Can I have the worship team come up on stage, please? So I just...